0: If we were all going to a concert and one person went to the concert and they put both of their arms out straight to their side and they spun in a circle and that was their space and belonging for them meant taking up that much space, it would necessarily mean that there was less space for other people. And so a lot of belonging is for people with privilege is asking, what is the appropriate amount of space for me to take up such that other people can participate and be here too?
1: Welcome to the Models We Live By podcast, the podcast that explores how overcoming the mental models we all hold on to can help us grow to become better people. Hey, Brandy, how are you doing?
0: I'm making it out here as well as anyone can be (laughs) given gesture at everything that's happening in the world.
1: (laughs) Yeah, the world is a little bit on fire, I feel like, in the last couple of every every year (laughs) pretty much
0: constantly now
1: (laughs) what has been your top devastating news story and then i want to move on to your top most awesome news story
0: i mean i think it's the it is both the act of gun violence in our country or in the u.s rather and the unrepentant way in which white evangelical christians will support guns over human lives Every single time. Mm. And so I find myself very frustrated by both the shootings themselves and by the political response to those shootings. So I yeah. spend a lot of time thinking about that particular intersection.
1: Yes, I can only imagine. Ugh, I'm so sorry. It's
0: what it is in these streets. <laughs>
1: But to not leave the listeners on a sad note, is there also news stories (laughs) that made you happy this week?
0: You know, I haven't been much in the good news category. I mean, I guess Beyonce (laughs) now has the record for most Grammys won by an artist ever. So while she got snubbed on album of the year, I feel like her getting some level of her flowers, even if it's not what we would have wanted, Well, a lot many of us would have wanted. There is a lot of joy in seeing her. Yeah show up, do well, despite all of the barriers to her getting to be great yes. in public space.
1: Exactly. My wife and I were driving in a car and we just heard that one part. Thank you to the queer community. Mm-hmm. Both of us in tears right away. Like, <laughs> oh. I I cannot believe how grand she is because i listened to her when i was young i'm from 1981 (laughs) so since destiny's child uh, it's it's really it's really amazing yeah i think that's good news yeah Yeah. i'll go i'll go to my my least favorite news was donald trump's campaign last week his rage against trans people i'm like really. And also, I think the campaign was not necessarily the thing that really ticked me off, but it was people's response to it, or even mm-hmm. the news headlines that they were just repeating. Oh, he's going after puberty blockers. Oh, he was on a full-fledged war against people like me. He wanted yes. to take. I was, I was fearing that he would take away my kids if he would win. Like, mm-hmm. am I gonna be perceived yeah. as a groomer or whatever? And then a couple of days later, fortunately, in Virginia where I live we won like yeah. 10 out of 12 laws have been repealed because let's face it we don't want this yeah. stuff <laughs> not at all so you are a pastor at quest you are the podcast host of reclaiming my theology i just heard that you're not just a power lifter but also a power lifting coach what <laughs> who is who is brandy miller and also I like to ask every guest, what is your purpose?
0: Well, I will say I'm not a pastor. Um, That's pretty intentional in my life right now. Technically, my job Mm -hmm. title is chief storyteller, but it does take a pastoral edge. So there are ways that the work i do doing spiritual formation at the church i yeah. go to and really love is a pastoral role but while i am i am not a pastor and so i think about i think about some of the intersections of that really yeah. often in my life as i am a pastoral person but i don't hold the role of a pastor and that's because i don't know if i want to i don't know if i want to be in a position of authority in people's lives in that way and so i'm working really yeah. carefully to decide whether that's something i want to be about Yeah. And then I'm a weightlifting coach. I do competitive weightlifting, which is fun (laughs) and then host the podcast, like you said. And so a lot of my I don't know if my purpose is anything beyond becoming fully myself in a world that would consistently ask me to change things to be able to survive and exist. And so I think beyond just like becoming more myself and like the process of becoming, I think a lot of my purpose is taking the deconstruction process, which for people can be very confusing Mm -hmm intuitive, unknown, maybe unintuitive and unknown, and trying to make that clear for people who still want to either Still follow Jesus or make sense of the faith that they once had and know that they are yeah. not crazy. And I use that word carefully and intentionally because I think there is a specific, and I use this word carefully, gaslighting effect of a lot of Christian spaces that tell people who have chosen to leave that they're wrong for leaving when leaving nice. is the most healthy thing some people can do. And so I hold a lot of space in my own purpose and in myself to make the process less intuitive and more practical for people who want to maintain their faith and to create mm. avenues for understanding and healing for folks who no longer find themselves in those Christian spaces.
1: Can you say a little bit more about that gap? You you stated my purpose is to be who I'm supposed to be versus what the world expects me to be. Can you say a little bit more about that gap?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm a 32-year-old black queer woman who exists in Christian space. And so Mm. in a Christianity that asks people to be more white perform more male or hyper feminine, to be cis, to be straight, to be all of those things. I think there's many ways in which I do not exist in the normative space. And so I'm trying to ask myself, how do I not perform a Christianity that wasn't built for me or by people who look like me, and find a way to pull all of the threads of people and experiences, theologies and ideas in my life and figure out how I exist in those things. And so it's both asking who am I and who am I not. And given those things, what will I believe about the world and what work will I put my hand to?
1: That is pretty deep. I have worked in conservative spaces. My education has always been Liberal theology, as in like Chicago 19th century liberal and George (laughs) Lindbeck liberal, Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. post liberal. So I had no idea that all y'all existed. (laughs) How do you become a person that sees whoa? You already said the world expects me to be a certain person because of how I look or who I am as a woman, as a queer woman. How do you see that and decide, okay, enough scraps, I'm going to fight?
0: You know, I actually don't even know that I would call it fighting. I think Mm. fighting for me is exhausting. It is adversarial. And I don't think I actually need an adversarial posture against an institution or people groups to become more fully myself. I think I find that in my intimate relationships, in my communities, in the church that I choose to be a part of, and I go to where there is already room or where there's the potential for there to be room for all of who I am. And so a lot of the work is less fighting and more identifying both, is there space for me here? And if there's not, is there the potential for space? And am Mm -hmm. I willing to put in the effort to make that space where there is potential? And so working at Quest... I've found both that space and the potential for more space, not just for me, but for others to be able to be fully themselves and to find and experience deep belonging. And so, yeah, I think that that feels real for me.
1: Oh, I like that. The reason why I use the word scraps, and I also like that you said earlier, I use my words careful. It's in my business as well to to state certain things very clearly. When I use scraps, you you know the feeling of... Mm-hmm people expect you to be happy with this scraps. And this is a conversation that I constantly have uh, with my queer friends specifically of those who choose to stay in unaffirming spaces and try Mm -hmm. to fight things from the inside, which which I still believe is a fallacy, like full-fledged fallacy, or they are still okay with hanging out with a lot of unaffirming people, go to an unaffirming church, but could never invite you to, to that space. So I like that you stated that quest already had those things so instead of fighting you just turn your gaze towards what is more productive what is more Mm -hmm. spiritual and what is more healthy in your life that is pretty good For those who have no clue what Reclaiming My Theology is, can you tell me a little bit more about how that came about and and what it is exactly?
0: Yeah, you know, I think people expect my answer around how Reclaiming My Theology came to exist to be a little bit deeper. But I had these three arbitrary goals before I turned 30. One was to write a book or get a book proposal in and accepted. One was to do a backflip and one was to learn how to ride a motorcycle and to purchase one. Pandemic hit right around my 30th birthday. So the only one I succeeded in was buying a motorcycle. (laughs) And so... uh, And part of the reason I didn't want to write a book is because in Western culture, where we worship the written word and where if something is written down, it is more authoritative. I was just reflecting Mm. on my own experience of learning and unlearning in my 20s and just knew that if I were to write something down a few years ago, I might do so from a place that wasn't actually grounded, that wasn't rooted in love for other people or It would have just been like a self-serving endeavor. And I think that podcasts are different. Podcasts are, at least my podcast, is dialogical by nature. And so we're never trying to close a conversation. We're always trying to open up a conversation and ask, how is the conversation that this person and I are having create more space for people to enter into the conversation, both themselves in like a parasocial way with me and the guest, but also with other people in their lives and to create threads of conversation and openness. And so I had intended to do 10 episodes thinking about white supremacy And then it just hit a felt need. And so I found kind of that pastoral impulse in me moved to keep having conversations. And the more that we talked to people, the more I was like, wow, there's so much more to talk about. And so we've continued on trying to help people both make sense of the experiences that they've had in predominantly conservative evangelical white churches, and the kind of expansion of that culture into other cultures, but then also to offer people new ways of seeing the Bible, their faith, the church, what that could look like, and creating more and more space for creativity and for belonging and for becoming in the midst of that. And so reclaiming my theology, the tagline is that we seek to take our theology back from ideas and systems that oppress because I believe that theology is for everyone, it is the work of the people. And if it's the work of the people, then my job is to be one of the people, to be a person who starts and stimulates dialogue, but then allows the Mm. conversation to exist outside of my space and to not need to exert authority or dominance or power over how those ideas are fledged out in people's lives.
1: Wow. That's very George Lindbeck uh, right there. Actually, that's super cool. (laughs) Interpretive community. And we Mm -hmm. are the interpretive community. Mm -hmm. I hear you when you do those episodes and you drop those sneaky, super theological (laughs) mic drops in there. (laughs) Respect. (laughs) Respect. I love it. I love the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) That's also important. You know, I, I love that also about your podcast and, and I think where the tension lies for me with deconstructing Christians as I'm getting acquainted with them ever since like last year, people within the deconstructing space, that there tends to be this fed up feeling of, I'm not gonna go to progressive spaces because they don't take Jesus or the Bible serious at, at all. So let me just stick with conservative spaces or let me just stick within an evangelical church. So this deconstructing space looks like a complete, Uncharted territory. Mm-hmm. I, like, I like what the post-evangelicals are doing as well. I heard Peter Choi speak about what his version of post-evangelicalism is. I'm like, wow, there's a lot to think about where we can take mm-hmm. things like the Bible, spirituality, and Jesus, all things that I take really serious. But I'm also pretty liberal with my theology, if that makes sense. What, mm-hmm. what do you make of all that?
0: Well, one of the things with deconstruction that is challenging is that many folks who are deconstructing their faith grew up in communities that were obsessed with systematic theology, not biblical theology. And so we were taught how to interpret ideas or principles or absolute quote unquote truths about God in the text, but not to understand the stories as stories. And so we divorced the story of God from our own stories and from the Bible itself. And so then the Bible becomes a tool and a weapon to create compliance rather than a story to explore our own lives in, which is a very Jewish way of expressing spirituality. And so I think because a lot of evangelicalism has lost its Jewishness and it has lost its I, mm-hmm. its ability to explore and sit with the text and not need to dig, like unearth some gem out of it, <laughs> we've we've lost all of our skill set to be able to ask good questions. And so so I think there's that piece then there's this other piece in deconstructing communities, which is that people are very frustrated by the threats that were given to them about what would happen if they did certain things in their lives. And we were given a lot of promises in those conservative evangelical spaces about what would happen if we did do the things. And a lot of those were related to sex and dating. Like if you don't have sex, if you don't date a bunch of people, if you don't do drugs, if you don't drink alcohol, God's going to bless your life. And that blessing looks like a really specific thing. It looks like a monogamous, faithful partner, a bunch, to kids and some kind of like economic freedom and a sense of purpose. But when those things didn't come true for people who adhered to all of those kind of dogmas and ideas... yeah you have to start asking questions about like okay well if if i did all the stuff i did all the right stuff that god told me to do that my christian leaders told me to do and it's not coming true then is it me that's wrong or is it the framework that i was given that actually deceived wow. me into thinking that life with god was something that it totally isn't and so instead of there being space for people to explore their own lives we're pigeonholed into promises that most of us don't actually want in the way that they're presented anyway, but because there's a threat of hell or disassociation from the community that Mm -hmm. is present in all of that theology and all of that Christian culture, the risk is super high for those who start to ask questions and therefore we don't.
1: Thank you so much for sharing that. I would love to just talk theology for 17 <laughs> hours because, you know, I'm a theologian. And Jewish, I appreciate the the shout out there. I'm very comfortable with the ambiguity of not knowing the answer. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, digging a little bit into the topic of the day, how how did you talk about intimacy and sex growing up in your life?
0: So I didn't grow up in a Christian household, but I think one of the misconceptions in non-Christian or non-religious space is that purity culture exists in Christian space predominantly. And what is actually the case is that because of how Christians have entrenched themselves in the political system in the U.S., purity culture Mm. and conversations about sex and intimacy from an evangelical conservative Christian lens are everywhere. It's inescapable. It's the air we breathe. It's why many of us had abstinence-only education in our secular or like quote unquote, what my church would have called like worldly schools. Why were those values present? Why weren't we learning things like consent and respect and responsibility? And it was because of the ways that Christian theology had an impact on those other spaces. And so a lot of my experience with that stuff happened before I entered the church. And then when I was in middle school, early high school and entered the church, it was kind of the peak of the purity movement. So purity rings, purity conferences, purity balls, like all of these threats that you're going to be a crumpled up flower or a chewed up piece of gum and all of these kind of objectified metaphors that were used to tell you why you wouldn't be good enough for someone else to love, like why you were going to make yourself unlovable if you were sexual. And so sex became the center of all conversations about intimacy. So we weren't actually talking about intimacy in friendships or in family or how we think about ourselves. I always say it's the mean girls effect. It's the don't have sex. Mm. If you do, you'll get pregnant and die. And instead of saying, hey, like y'all don't have good friendships. Y'all aren't real with each other. You don't have basic emotional intimacy, let alone physical intimacy. Intimacy. And then we expect people, when they get into romantic relationships, to suddenly have an entire skill set dumped into their brain by God to be successful because they've done it the godly way. And frankly, it's bullshit. Like, how can we expect people to do that? And so I grew up in a context where that kind of dogma was shoved down our throats with no why, nor actually a very compelling biblical theology around why we were being told those things. It was a lot of Mm -hmm. scare tactics. Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, scare tactics, dehumanization, and objectification were at the center of how I learned this stuff.
1: I never thought about how it would be drenched into secular context through politics. Like we share a guest, Dr. Tina was on your podcasts as well. And she mentioned something like that as well, like that over the years, sex ed became less robust and we started talking less about it. But that was because the conservative Christian pushed towards mm-hmm. taking that out of schools, which is what we see today as well, right? Absolutely. First it was, first it was, let's take sex out of school and now let's take us out of school. Let's take queer people out of school. Oh my. But you had like, what, 11 episodes about purity culture. I am dying to hear what your big takeaways are from hearing all that wisdom being thrown upon you and you being a listener. Let's start with that. What's your biggest takeaway from having all your guests on?
0: One of the biggest things I have learned doing this season on Purity Culture is that the effects of purity culture on our bodies, regardless of whether we think we were affected deeply by it or not, is deeper than most of us know. And as a lot of folks are listening, and as I'm doing this work myself, a lot of stuff is coming up, stuff that we forgot about, stuff that we didn't realize was affecting us. And so I am learning that there is this deep, deep need for embodied practices and space for safe exploration of your own body and your own desires in order to have a more holistic life. And I think that I had expected to maybe develop a new theology that was gonna be really specific and really compelling. (laughs) But really what I've learned is that many of us, whether we're Christians, or not have been hurt by our own policing of our bodies and how other people have policed us, and therefore don't know a lot about ourselves, our desires, our desires for intimacy, our expressions of friendship and relationships very well at all. And I think that's one of the biggest losses and griefs I have doing this series on purity culture is that purity culture robbed many of us from deep friendships, not just romantic relationships. Mm-hmm. It robbed us from being able to love and be loved in a way that was genuine for us, not just like kept us from having sex, and that didn't really work for most people yeah, anyway. Pew Research would say that evangelical Christians are having sex at the same rate that non-Christians are. But I think there was this kind of thing that was taken from many of us that doesn't have anything to do with sex, but that was taken away at the same time that as we were having those conversations.
1: That there's a lot of layers there. I'm interested to hear a little bit more about the relationship aspects of purity. I think all my guests, we only talk about sex and part of it some some talk about purity culture so I'm, I'm interested to hear a little bit more about the the friendship or the relationship aspect in what ways do you see that affects relationships in general
0: you know I there's a poem that my friend David Gate wrote and it says this friendship is what will save us so fall deeply in love with your friends Date them, woo them, pursue them, mark your anniversaries, celebrate their victories, take care of their names when they're not in the room. Create a space for them where all truths are tender, for intimacy doesn't have to be reserved for romance and crushes do not belong only to lovers. So don't hide it. When you find it, a bonafide ride or die. And as I read that poem, it felt like it really made sense of a lot of my experiences where I was taught that the most important relationship in your life was your romantic or sexual partner where friendship became an afterthought to romantic relationships. And so for me, in reading David's poem, I find my own experience. I find my experience of being a person who cares really deeply about my friends, who feels like the line between romance and platonic is so blurry. And I think it should be intentionally, like, why shouldn't we be able to hold hands with our friends or hug them deeply or tie our lives to them in more intimate ways? And so Hmm. I think because a lot of evangelicalism has said that who you marry and who you have sex with is the most important person in your life, and it is your family. We have shrunk our view of what family can be, because I think family for me is found more in my friendships than it ever has been in a romantic partner, because my friendships are forever for me. And so I have found that there is a disdain in Christian space for intimacy that isn't sexual or marital. And so I've been doing a lot of work in my own life to reclaim intimacy from sex and marriage and actually ask, how is intimacy present in my friendships and in my day-to-day life rather than just in this one thing that may never happen for many people?
1: That intimacy part, when I look at my own culture, like I'm Indonesian, we're definitely more (laughs) cuddly not just in family sense but even in the movies I, I think of of my other asian kids specifically south asian movies where you see men hug each other and tickle each other and have mm-hmm. much more play and I, I remember with my friend brian every time i watch a movie with him it's like mish The culture difference is not just like they start dancing and and singing. That's a big cultural difference. But the fact that two adult men tickle each other, and that's the memory that comes to mind when you talk about this intimacy part. Why is something like putting my arm around someone's shoulder, giving someone a hug, or even giving someone a kiss, why is that reserved for romantic relationships Mm -hmm. exactly? I mean, I'm looking at my brain right now and trying to scan history to find who decided on that in the Western culture. Ooh. And,
0: and I don't know. I don't, <laughs> I, I don't have a fullness of, I know there's, I, I, we could trace some of it through like how white Western colonizers saw indigenous communities even in the U.S. But my, my knowledge is more U.S. specific. So I don't want to speak outside of that. One of, one of the things I think about pretty often is how Christians, and I use this phrase, it's a derogatory phrase and I use it intentionally because it was a cultural moment. So just know that. But I think okay. Christians really hung on to like the no homo movement, oh, which was yes. like a prevalent, phenomenon in the early 2000s, which was like, any kind of intimacy makes you gay and being gay is the worst thing that you can do. And so if you want people to not think that you're the worst possible thing that evangelicals think is out there, then you need to be aggressively masculine or aggressively feminine and make sure that there is no ambiguity about your sexuality or your desire or your intimacies. Because if you slip up, quote unquote, then you end up looking like you're gay. And that because that was a reality in many of our formational years, many folks have a kind of trigger response, I think, to intimacy, because the consequence was, you know, these threats of hell or these threats of being outside of the community, or like the threat that many of our queer kin get, which is that you'll be alone forever. And so whether folks Mm. were queer in some capacity or straight, the threat of being alone or of being outside of the community was the same. And so I feel very aware of how Christianity took up that movement and therefore robbed many people specifically men of healthy intimacies in their lives.
1: Ouch. Yeah, my wife told me about that when I came to to I moved here in 2012 from the Netherlands. I literally had this talk with other guests a a while ago. There was a similar thing in the Netherlands where even if there were queer people in the room, if somebody would say, are you gay or something? The only appropriate response to that would be like, yuck, no, I'm not gay. Mm -hmm. And so when kim my wife told me about the whole no homo that that was a thing like what this exists in two Mm -hmm. separate places in two different varieties but still they exist in these Mm -hmm. two different universes and of course it makes me sick to to my stomach but it does give a little bit of an explanation of how you state that that hyper masculinity is by default, a cure to being perceived as as gay. And I wonder if that's the same aggressive response that we get in this queer revolution that we find ourselves in. Like I came out as trans when I was 39. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) And I always say, thank you, Gen Z, because they gave me words. Like I was NB 10 years ago. but I had no words for it until I was like, okay. okay, I think I'm non-binary. How do we fight this or not fight it? I see your face like fights should yeah. we fight? But what do we do about this?
0: When I think about what can be done about purity culture, the first thing I think about is healing. For many of us to discover who we are, to have space to explore ourselves, we have to do some healing. And I think that in the spaces I grew up in, healing was all about forgiving the people that wronged you and whatever, if you want to do that, that's your prerogative. And I think it can be a very Mm -hmm. Jesus-y thing. But I think what I was taught forgiveness was and what that actually is are really different things. And so I think that as we pursue unlearning purity culture, we have to pursue our own healing. We have to be in therapy. We have to rediscover our relationship with our bodies. Mm. and ask critical questions about why we believe what we believe about our bodies. Because I think the conversation about purity culture is a body-centered conversation. Many of us grew up in a Christianity where the body was a disposable object that was a container for your soul. Right, right. And so the idea of exploring your body, your needs, your desires, your sexuality, your intimacies in any way was a trivial thing that only mattered insofar as you knew what you were not supposed to do. And so for many of us, we shut down any kind of knowledge of our bodies and never made space to actually know ourselves. And so the healing journey for many of us out of purity culture is getting to know ourselves and to ask deep questions about our intimacies, to ask questions not just about our ideologies, because I think that's what a lot of folks do right now. Now is say like, oh, well, I'm not transphobic. And I'm like, okay, but would you ever date a trans person? We choose to stop at the easy question of ideology and never go to the question of embodiment. And so I think to move forward from this conversation in purity culture, we have to ask the hard questions about our embodiment, and not just let our like the word preference or background or natural desire get in the way of us actually exploring both the oppressive ideologies we hold, And the things about ourselves that we may not know because they've been suppressed in conservative Christian spaces and under a broader culture of purity culture in the U.S.
1: Oh, that's very relevant. My wife had to go through a similar thing when I told her, you know what, I think I'm going to pursue my transition. She was not trying to like scare me off and saying, I I think I'm going to leave or so because I'm her person. I knew that I was safe with her. I mean I was terrified but I was safe of course, with her of so I knew course, this yes, yes, yes. <laughs> This is going to be a great conversation this is going to be a, a a meaningful conversation and and I think she would still not consider herself queer or lesbian or whatever people want to want to label it because we need to now have this conversation she sees me as her person but I am a woman and I will look even more feminine a year from now and a year after that, right? Or wherever Mm -hmm. I decide to land on. Sheesh, that's the hard conversation to have. Not Mm -hmm. the, oh, so are you going to leave me? Or are you now lesbian? Those are the superficial. What Mm -hmm. is love? What is romance? How can you Mm -hmm. explore play and intimacy with each other? Those are the true hard questions. That's a complicated thing to try to get out of people and then you also yes. touched on that belonging parts which is another thing that i'm passionate about in my research is like how can we do that without taking away the sense of belonging of say white people or of say gender normative people however you want to call that right how can you let them keep their sense of belonging but also explain that allyship hurts
0: well i think the problem with the word belonging in the u.s is that it is completely separated from an analysis of power. So a lot of white folks or like folks who sit in cis gender normative spaces see their own normativity without seeing the power associated with it. I think for many folks, belonging becomes about getting to be who you are and never change. And that's not community. That's not belonging. Because frankly, if if how I show up in the world and how I'm treated by our society causes harm to my sibling, belonging is not me not changing. Creating spaces of belonging and belonging in and of myself in any kind of privileged position I have is asking how my privilege impacts my belonging, and then doing the emotional work to not be so fragile as to see every criticism of the superiorities that I have as being something about the core of who I am. Mm -hmm. So I see a lot of white folks often being like, they'll be in multi-ethnic spaces, and they'll be like, Well, I feel like all we do is talk about everyone else without seeing that the entirety of Christianity has been centered, at least in the West, around the protection of white women or the privileging of white men. And so not talking about whiteness as the center feels like oppression to folks who have been at the center the whole time. And so I think that question around belonging is complicated because my job is not to create belonging for oppression and superiority complexes in the community. It's to create space for embodied humans to show up fully as themselves and to do the work of learning and unlearning and of deciding what we're going to be like as a community together. And I can't be fully in community with someone who will not relinquish the effects of their privilege, nor or use them on my behalf. And so I think a lot of allyship is actually ideological performance rather than an embodied reality, because the embodied stuff is much harder and requires folks with privileged identities to take a back seat, which will feel a lot like not belonging, when really it's the mm. necessary work of unlearning and humility that it takes to make space for other people. And so I think about that kind of stuff often.
1: That exact link of doing the hard work, understanding that the world was built for you, oh ye, cis at white male. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That is not taking away your belonging. That's just inviting you in a conversation. And I find it hard to engage. I try to do it. So, for example, I often ask acquaintances, okay, walk into that room full of people six feet behind me and watch people's faces. Just observe how I have Mm -hmm. to carry myself through this world every fucking day. Mm -hmm. Just just to give you some context and some perspective of you literally can walk into a room and nobody's talking about you nobody's looking weird at you nobody's giggling mm-hmm. and then the people that are engaging with you 50% are just seeing you as a human and 50% see you as a mm-hmm. as a novelty or something exotic Mm-hmm. Oof, you know? So yes, I <laughs> I want that embodiment to become part of our culture. Because I want that too. Because I constantly run into it myself. I used to have a one-foot beard. I used to pass as a white guy. I used to pass as a non-queer person. I've enjoyed all those privileges. And then, of course, on top of that, I also see with belonging that certain words lose their potency. So when we started using the word belonging, belonging in the marketplace it was a potent word people understood it and now it becomes part of the woke agenda Mm -hmm. and it loses its potency so Mm -hmm. no matter how hard we try no no this is actually a, a good conversation to have It will not land and we need to be flexible, unfortunately, in order to reinterpret or retranslate the concept of belonging to people.
0: Yes, yes. And one metaphor about belonging that I think is helpful is like if we were all going to a concert and one person went to the concert and they put both of their arms out straight to their side and they spun in a circle and that was their space and belonging for them meant taking up that much space, it would necessarily mean that there was less space for other people. And so a lot of belonging is for people with privilege is asking, what is the appropriate amount of space for me to take up such that other people can participate and be here too hmm. and so it's less about not being yourself it's about putting your arms down so there's actually space for other people to exist in the same space as you it doesn't take away from you being at the concert it doesn't take away from you being present or enjoying the thing it just means the way in yeah. which you enjoy it is going to be different
1: i love that i am known for my terrible analogies <laughs> <laughs> i always try to explain an analogy and pe- <sighs> people like mish mish you I mean, you lost me. And then they start going into my analogies. Your analogy was just like, boom, clear. I understand.
0: <laughs> we <laughs> all have our now. gifts.
1: <laughs> Chief Storyteller, there you have it. I love nice it. It's my job. I love it.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, one more question about this purity culture season. In your conversation with Andy Hong, you, you talked a little bit about the connection of colonialism, purity culture. And she and I had that talk as well about about exoticness, what I mentioned before. Can you expand a little bit more about how it was here in America and how you see colonialism and purity culture either go hand in hand or how they acted as a catalyst for each other?
0: Yeah, so when I think about colonialism, the baseline ideology of it is that people who are colonizing, so colonizers have a right way of existing for the betterment of the whole world. And when you add religion to that kind of colonial impulse, the impulse to impose your way of being onto other people, you always assume superiority, and you always assume that your way is the only way. And when you tie that to religion and to Christianity in particular, it means that anyone who falls outside of the norms of the colonial instigator, that they deserve all of the bad things that you see in scripture because clearly the colonizers are doing God's will. And so colonization in the US was predicated on these white Western men had the right way, and indigenous people, black people, were inherently problematic and needed to be converted, not just into Christianity, but into whiteness. And so Mm. in that, whiteness becomes the standard for all things, including sex, sexuality, marriage, relationships, and intimacy. And so when white folks see themselves as superior, when men see themselves as superior, and when they see their ideology as being connected to Jesus, they start to impose interpretations of the Bible that reify their inherent goodness. Because if you do not reify your inherent goodness, then all of the sexual assault genocide, all of that is just sin. But oh, yeah, if it's to yeah. the end of creating a more Christian world, a more godly people, then all of those are justifiable stepping stones on the way to glory or to holiness. And so when I think about purity culture specifically and kind of that same colonial impulse, I see churches operating in the same way, saying we have the right way of knowing sex relationships and dating. A pastor will get up and say, hey, look at my relationship with me and my smoking hot wife. This is what you could have if you conform, if you do. <laughs> Turn toward the people whose impulse is to say everything about you needs to change to be like us. And so, while the implications of that impulse are different, the same impulse of I have the right way, and if you do the right thing, you won't go to hell, you won't be damned, you won't have a problematic relationship with God, all exists in the context of purity culture. And so, I think that those ties for me are not indirect, they are direct because the tools used in the founding of a place like the United States are the same tools that Christian pastors use now, even if in a lighter way with more fluffy language.
1: I can't agree more. You know, not my, this is definitely not my field, but I remember, I think I was taking, this was back in in my master's days that I was taking a course on just war theory. Hmm. And I had the same feeling where okay, under the guise of war, we justify many things. Like, for uh-huh. starters, murder, right? But yeah. war never just goes alone. It typically goes with looting. It typically goes with things like rape, uh-huh. uh, assault. I struggle. That's, that's probably where I have landed. Since I was a kid, I was very hefty pacifist like I got a ginormous tattoo on my back that states only a fool trusts his life to a weapon and amazing. And (laughs) something in me is like it's an ugly tattoo but I also don't feel like I should take it off because it definitely fits me and over the years I got a little bit uh, you know jaded maybe and I started thinking okay maybe war is necessary until that one class again and Mm -hmm. that re-upped my belief in why war is not necessary like ever i don't have the solution for it but just because i don't have an alternative or a solution for war does not mean that i cannot just Mm -hmm. think war is unnecessary Mm -hmm. (laughs) within that war and and rape culture if you will i can see that definitely in colonialism as well Mm. especially if i think about colonizing where you start seeing people like asian people african people as subhuman Mm-hmm. where it doesn't really matter that you raped someone because it's not really rape. Rape is another human being and a mm-hmm. subhuman is not really a human being. It's so what a does human. it matter?
0: Yep, 100%. It
1: feels like a sting in my heart mm-hmm. as I'm talking about this. This is is so systemic and not in a way where, if you will, the woke movement is talking about there's a systematic wall of oppression. Yes, yes, I see that one, but I think it's even more systemically wrong. Like I'm thinking of the first settlers that came into America and saying something like, white supremacy brought christianity into the country i think it's reversed i think christianity or at least that flavor of christianity brought white supremacy into this nation with its privileges and with its seeing the entirety of the variety of indigenous nations on the land that we sit right now as subhuman oh 15 seasons on this please
0: Yeah, seriously. (laughs) Uh.
1: What topics are you still hungering for to dig in deeper on this that you're like, oof, I want to know more?
0: Yeah. So part of how I structured this season was to hit the broad concepts first. So to think at large about sex, gender, the Bible, and not necessarily the specifics of purity culture, because I think a lot of those conversations have happened in other spaces and like, that's totally fine. But we are now moving into a space where we're talking more about specifics. So things like consent responsibility, respect, we're talking about virginity as a concept and the implications of a belief in that concept. We're talking about fetishization and the ways that Christians create fetishes that then create violences and abuses. We're talking about the ways that Christians talk about sex and dating doesn't actually prepare us for relationships, particularly ones that have abuse in them. We're going to talk about fat phobia and its connection to body standards and purity culture. We're going to mm. talk and have some really hard conversations about that, what we talked about earlier, about grooming. We're going to have all those conversations. So it's going to take a really long time because frankly, there's just things that I want to spend more time with before I talk about them in any kind of authoritative way, even if a author- isn't what I'm aiming for.
1: Yeah, (laughs) definitely, definitely. Consent has been probably the topic that came up most. Like, Mm -hmm. can we talk about why we're not talking about if we are comfortable, please? Can we talk about like, hey, if you are having sex with someone and you're feeling uncomfortable, maybe the other person is also feeling uncomfortable. And if you just talk about this shit, maybe then both of you can be comfortable by not having sex at that moment.
0: (laughs) Yes. Well, and my my personal issue around how the church talks about consent is that the theology behind all of it says that God is always wanting to violate your will, that your will is always a problem and you always need to submit to someone else's will. Therefore, what Mm -hmm. you want, what you desire, is either inherently sinful or of the flesh or it's something that you need to navigate Ooh. through to give God glory or to be holy and so i think consent is coming up in a lot of these conversations because many of us were always taught that our bodies can't be trusted that our desires can't be trusted and so we've never asked good questions about those things and instead ended up in situations that have not been healthy or loving or good for us because we didn't know how to say no because the best thing that you can do in an evangelical church in relationship to god and to leaders is to submit and to violate your own will for the sake of the quote unquote greater good
1: the concept of surrender versus the concept of submission Mm -hmm. where surrender i believe that could be a beautiful intimate moment especially Mm -hmm. in the bedroom but submission no hard stop it cannot be good we need a reinterpretation of scripture for this culture because of that where we have those things like submit yourself to what is that philippians 1 submit yourself to Mm -hmm. the gospel of christ only conduct yourself sometimes they say but what do we really mean there what would the author expect us to get out of that in the 21st century with an entire generation Mm -hmm. damaged and traumatized by the purity culture having bad body images because of of the way Christianity has conveyed themselves. I feel like I came late to this show, to this party. Did I just open Pandora's box? Is this a can of worms?
0: I think if you take it seriously, it is. I think a lot of folks who enter into conversations about purity culture are only willing to go an inch deep and a mile wide. And that is to say, I didn't get to have sex and I feel sad about that. And now I have feelings and no one's making space for my feelings. And instead they're throwing theology at me. And that is a fine experience to have. But I think when we start to talk about purity culture, the depths that it will take us to, what it will require of us to unlock, learn and to be honest about in ourselves is far deeper than most of us are actually willing to do. And so as you ask, like, have I just opened Pandora's box in talking about purity culture? Yeah, because it will do things to your own body, to your own sense of yourself, to your interpretation Mm. of your own experiences and to your interpretation of God and what God wants for you or what is good in the world in ways that I think can be incredibly disorienting, even if the end goal is healing and goodness
1: which makes all the more sense that purity culture and colonialism go hand in hand Mm -hmm. it is ancient it is not Mm -hmm. it's not just the 90s
0: (laughs) (laughs) not at all
1: the 90s were interesting let's (laughs) (laughs) for sure yes (laughs) so as a chief storyteller do you think i've been thinking about this a lot because one of my guests came up with this and we started thinking about can we bring liturgy into the bedroom It is perceived as something filthy and unholy and unclean or whatever. And we ought not to bring God into the game. But sex is the best thing that can ever happen to you. But it's also filthy. Okay, so I'm imagining a world where talking about sex is already a little bit more common, especially with friends, with family, with your children and with your partner, of course. How do we integrate? How do we create a more free narrative about sexuality and how can we integrate this narrative into the bedroom so it becomes freeing, like a feeling of surrender versus a feeling of submission
0: Honestly, I don't know I don't know how we do that. What I do know is that as we begin to understand who we are, we begin to understand God more. And Mm -hmm. I think part of the issue with purity culture is that it disconnects us from our bodies. And then we expect that the shell of us that's left after purity culture is somehow going to come into intimacy with God and therefore know our belovedness, our worth, our value to other people. And those things are really important when we start to talk about sex and what happens in the bedroom is like, do we know our own worth, well-being, belovedness? Do we know our own desires? Do we know God's acceptance of us so that we're not always sitting under a cloud of shame, regardless of how we choose to interact with our sex or sexuality? And so I'm not totally sure how we bring what we're talking about into more intimate spaces, but I do know that the healing that we do from purity culture allows us a more genuine relationship with the divine and with the people that we're in relationship with, because we're not spending all of our time interpreting whether things are right or wrong, and allowing things just to be, and then to decide for ourselves in relationship to the divine and other people what feels good, what doesn't, what is right for us, what is not, and not letting that be shaped by a bunch of middle-aged white pastors who married the first person they fell in love with, because that clearly hasn't done any of us any good.
1: Well, thank you so, so much for willing to be on this podcast. I always ask this one question, one final question to every guest. And that is, what is one piece of advice that you would give to the millions of brandies that are out there?
0: That learning to trust yourself is a challenging endeavor. And it is particularly hard if you've grown up in a space where people say that you cannot be trusted but there are things (laughs) that you know about yourself and about god deep in your core that the world needs and if you do the work of excavating those things you will find yourself more free and create more space for others who may need the thing that is in you i'm gonna process that (laughs) that is very deep can i also say
1: that this is probably gonna be the easiest to edit podcast ever wow (laughs) you've done this a couple of times obviously
0: a few times here and there a few times
1: well thank you so much for being a guest on the show i very appreciate it as this tiny podcast maker here in richmond virginia
0: i'm very honored it is my joy to get to do these things thank you
1: This has been The Models We Live By podcast. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoy this content, it would mean a lot to me if you look me up on Instagram or TikTok as Mish Van Essen. If you enjoyed the conversation with Brandy Miller, check out her podcast called Reclaiming My Theology. There are many podcasts out there conducting important conversations on topics of faith, sexuality, and more. We recommend checking out our friends at Refuge Radio and Permission to Be, as well as Queerology. The music is by AGST, Looking forward to sharing with you again next time.